0: I'm honored to publish this episode for BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month. BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And this conversation is with our good friend and expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, Sophia Pertou's PhD. I have to admit right off the bat that as a white kid from the white suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, talking about race and ethnicity doesn't come easy for me. Outside of reading the autobiography of Malcolm X after watching the movie in high school, I never gave race and ethnicity much thought. In college, I learned more about American history and the history of Europeans traveling around the world and killing and stealing from non-white people. At some point, I realized that whether I like it or not, the way my white ancestors thought about race and ethnicity has led to some pretty bad things in the world. And that realization hasn't really helped me understand how to talk to my kids about race and ethnicity. We can watch the movies and documentaries and watch the news, but I still don't know how to bring that into their lives so they can do better than I've done and do better than our ancestors. Thankfully, Sophia sat down with me and Audra to get into it. We talk about the difference between race and ethnicity, how Sophia learned that difference getting bullied as a child how white parents like me can start talking to our kids about racism, and finally, we dig into Sophia's work in teen mental health and suicide prevention. So without further ado, here's our wonderful conversation with Sophia Pertou's PhD.
1: Good morning, Sophia. It's so good to see you. Good morning. Good to see you both. Always a thrill. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are so, so thrilled to have this conversation with you and such an important conversation. I feel like this is one that I have been really, really looking forward to having on The Family Thrive that I'd like to be ongoing because we're going to be growing together. And I think this conversation can continue to grow. Oh,
2: I'm excited. What are we talking about? Yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> So Sophia, we have known you for such a long time that there, I mean we, we, could, we could talk about so many things going all the way back to Columbia, in New York City, uh, several decades can, ago. Yeah.
1: Can I just say? Yeah. can I just add this? So we first met Sophia when, well, actually first met in an interview to for me, so I had I would gotten into a master's program at Teachers College, Columbia University. And I had found the uh, residence director in in residence life position and was able to secure an interview. So went out for a live interview at the time. And that's when I first met Sophia. and, And I was just in awe of Sophia from the beginning. And she's been such an incredible mentor to me from day one. And this was a high pressure interview. It was like, they put us in scenarios and we were in teams and like they're standing there with clipboards yeah, so it's like, exactly like designed uh, that terrible interview <laughs> <laughs> But
2: the wonderful thing is you came through with flying colors and you were awesome. So I'm so glad that we ended up getting to work together cuz I think we did some great things.
1: It was an experience of a lifetime. We were able to move to Manhattan without having to secure an apartment or deposit or anything like that. So if if, if anybody is is listening to this thinking like how is my kid going to go to college and make this happen? I highly, (laughs) highly recommend Residence Life. Check it out. And it's some of the best people experience you could ever get. One of the things that you brought to the team was a good amount of um, experiences, trainings, and support when it comes to what we called at the time diversity. And I think that we're Kind of changing the language around that now. I think that we're moving into a space beyond kind of diversity and into a space of belonging. So I'm really excited to talk with you about that. But I also wanted to share that Sophia, as a mentor to me, taught me so so much. And one of the things that that always sits with me is just your your kind, supportive guidance and the fact that you're always just so real with me. And I'll never forget this time. There was this time when I emailed not an inappropriate email, but an inappropriate email for the setting, like with you know higher ups, out of frustration for something. I'll never forget. Like Sophia pulled me and she's like, she's like, sit down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is this
1: is not this is not how this is done. This is not how you get things done. This is not you know this is not the way to go about it. And it it was one of the biggest life lessons for me. And one of the things that I learned going into higher education myself, going into leadership development, becoming someone who has built teams myself now, is that one of the very, very best things that we can do when it comes to working with others and and mentoring folks is being honest and real and kind. Because if you just try to do the people-pleasing, kind of like you're doing a great job. It's okay. You know, you don't get into the real lessons.
2: Nobody grows. Exactly. Exactly. And I always think feedback is a gift. And I don't like to get feedback. <laughs> I think most people don't. Um, but I think when you do get the feedback, sometimes it comes in different ways. It comes very direct. And I I believe in being clear. And I, Brene Brown has an expression, clear is kind." I know you yes. love, mm. love her expressions, but the idea that you know, you should just tell people what you mean and mean what you say, because that's the best way for us to understand each other and be, I guess, graceful and kind with each other. That's, that's where. Ooh,
0: I- so it sounds to me like there's parenting lessons in here as well. Yes.
2: So- <laughs> I parenting lessons. I, I have a 17 year old and a 13 year old and they have taught me so much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I th- that the clarity and the feedback cuz as parents, you know, we're always giving our kids feedback whether we know it or not, right? And and so how did your experience in these leadership roles in higher education inform your parenting?
2: Well, first I'll say like maybe I could talk about what What I've always done, right? So I I started out, I grew up in the Bronx and I grew up with a mom who, parents, but my mom was the strong one in the family who was the one that laid down the law pretty much about what discipline was like. One thing that I remember is my mom was very strict. She was very uh, direct. You couldn't be more more direct than than what my mom and, you know, I lost her back in April. We lost her in April, unfortunately, Mm. but I want to say that I start with her because She taught me all the leadership lessons about that clarity and as mean as she was growing up, I feel like I bring that into my parenting. I try really hard to battle against the overly mean, right? Like being too direct and my mm-hmm, kids, mm-hmm. I don't yell I, like, well, maybe I don't, but I, <laughs> I, I'm very direct when I'm asking them to do something or, or explain to them why I'm disappointed that they didn't do something that I asked them to do. And my, my daughter will say, stop yelling. I'm like, oh, you don't know what yelling is. <laughs> like my mom was like, not even just yelling. She would go all out. What I bring from that, from my mom's um, being very clear about what she expected and telling us exactly what she is disappointed about. I brought that into my my uh, parenting where I just let them know I, I'm very clear. I'm very open. Um, and my dad was was part of our upbringing too, but he was more quiet. He did things in a much more like, I think I, I take from that too, where sometimes just a look is enough. Oh, yes. Setting the example was enough. My My dad was a of person that was just like you know what i'm not gonna get upset his car burned down <laughs> he had a car that just like in a car parking lot i don't know what happened to it but it, it i guess a fuse or something it pretty much blew up I, we were just looking at the picture the other day and he just looked at it and was like okay i'll get another one we'll figure it out mm-hmm. and, and there were many instances like that he was a cab driver and he had a, a knife put through his <laughs> like toward, to his throat, and he's like well, i said yeah. what did you do i gave them the money Like he just was always very calm and very like when we had achievements, me and my siblings, I grew up with my five siblings and we were all like on honor roll. We were winning awards. And his response was always like, Gary, it's it's what I expect from you. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. Of course, you're going to be excellent. You're great. You're great people and you're you're smart people and you're great kids. So I feel like I got the balance of both. Like my mom's over the top, you know, very... High expectations, always like really clear. And, and I would even say like mean about it. So we knew like we had expectations. We for real knew that with my dad's, okay, I expect it. I'm not going to go over the top on it. I'm just going to expect that. And you know it, and you're all going to be good people. And that's it. So I think I got mm-hmm. a little bit of both from from both. Of them. Yeah. That yeah, resonates that with,
1: with me as somebody who worked for you. I can really see your dad in that you were so calm under any pressure, under any fire, and like really modeled the way for all of us on how to just just get into calm and be like, okay, what's the problem we're solving? Like really straightforward. Nothing to freak out about, but we're solving a problem. Even like we had an attempted at kidnapping. Or or a kidnapping, actually. I think um, you know, there's definitely uh there was attempted uh suicide attempts and I think a, a water tower broke on the roof at one point yeah. and we had the blackout when we first got there. I was we were there for days, I think, and and the and we had oh, the blackout. I was blackout. busy
2: having a baby actually.
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> oh. My daughter
2: and I was freaking out because I was like, Oh no, I'm not there to take care of the things that I need to. My daughter was actually <laughs> born August 13. 2013. Oh my! And then the god. next yeah. day, the power. Oh my god! So,
0: <laughs> so it was
2: a mess. You know, they had shut down the hospital. I was downtown in Roosevelt Hospital on uh what is it, Sixtieth Street, and they shut everything down. Obviously, there was no power. They were on generators, so there was minimal everything. So think of, I just had a C-section, which was already. Uh, how <laughs> does that? How does
1: oh that work? God. I've had C-sections
2: i don't get it oh no <laughs> it was terrible because the doctors were cranky the nurses were cranky because they were grounded they were told they couldn't leave so you have to oh, there who are our first on. responders yeah, yeah oh no and to come visit me my husband antonio had to come from 120th street all the way down to 60th on foot <laughs> yes <laughs> that's, right. They drive that's right there were no lights right. and had to go up nothing. 11 flights to come see us so and for the
1: first baby, I know. That's his first- <laughs> Yes, so what I was getting from boring? people
2: is that you were all barbecuing because people were like, Well, I guess this, yeah. is a, this is gonna happen for a couple of days. Oh, yeah, so there were like social things happening a barbecue in front of Bancroft, the building over there. Yep. So I felt like at first I'm worried about my baby, me, and I'm crying, she's crying, it was a mess. But I was like, I remember getting some reports from people like, "Oh, it's it's pretty cool. The staff is holding it down. They're going around with flashlights. They're giving out candles. They're doing what they have to do to do the emergency stuff." So I felt good that I was like, "They don't need me." And that's probably the best thing you could do with parenting too, right? Ooh.
0: I raised them so well. <laughs> I, <raised them> so <laughs> well. I did the
2: best I could. Like I, my my daughter's graduated from high school. She's about to go to college, and as yeah, a, yeah. a twenty five year college administrator, I'm absolutely terrified because I was a dean of students. So I, spoke. oh, you know, oh, you know, you know too much. I, I know, know too it much, all. and yet I know nothing because yeah, I don't know yeah. how I'm going to react when it's my child, and I'm I'm going to just trust that I did the best I could and that I'm. Sending this this human out into the world who's going to do good things, who's going to be a good person. And you know what? If she does bad things and she's a terrible person, it comes with the territory. It's like we have to take it and do the best we can with everything that is in front of us. Because not every, every one of us can be perfect. And I want her to know that. Like, I want them, both my kids, to know... We're going to make mistakes. I have made some doozies. As they get older, I share more about the mistakes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up until now, you've been perfect, right? Yeah,
2: I've been perfect. Like, sometimes I start to I, I reminisce and I'm like, oh, back in my day, I used to go to the club. Uh, like, oh, so what time did you go? Oh, I'm like, wow, oh, no. wow.
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I better stop talking. How old were you? i like, uh, um, I don't know. How old. I don't remember.
0: <laughs> 30. Why are you? Yeah, uh, I didn't get off until so- I was
2: 25. <laughs>
0: So, Sophia, I I want to get into this diversity and inclusion part of your life. How did you get into the whole diversity and inclusion world? And then what makes you passionate about it?
2: Well, first, I would say everyone is in the diversity and inclusion world because everyone is handling different people, different personalities. I think you're asking it from a professional sense, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. I, I started my career in higher education and I remember going away to college. I pretty much went away and stayed in college for the rest of my life until re- <laughs> two years ago. Preach. Yeah. So- <laughs> Reminds me someone I know. <laughs> so I went to college and how it all started, I think was I had grown up Catholic. I grew up in the Bronx. Like I said earlier, I was born in Dominican Republic was brought to um, the U S when I was a baby, I was barely one. And I remember just watching how my family was where we lived. We lived in a place that there were mostly Puerto Rican and black families. We were the only Dominican family. As the only Dominican family, we were treated differently. And I remember having some standards around like who to hang out with, who not to and all that stuff. And so that's got me thinking about, wait a minute, what's different? Why are we treating each other differently? And why am I being attacked? I would actually be walking in my neighborhood, and I would be attacked by some black girls who were like, what are you? Touching my hair, pulling my hair, because my hair is black hair. It was curly, kinky at the time. So when they see kind of a light skin, you kind of look, I don't know what you look like. I don't know what you are. I actually was attacked by by people who were trying to understand what I was. So I think that's probably how I started because I don't want anyone to ever feel attacked just by being who they are, but I would say that my real start career-wise in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion would be when I was an RA. I went to college, I became an RA, and I would be the that RA going around doing programs like let's do programming on how to respect each other. And I did a lot of programming on it was the time of AIDS awareness, HIV, AIDS awareness, STDs when we called them. STDs, um, yeah, right. and I would do programs on called condoms and games or how to be a better lover on just respecting each other and how to be mindful of each other's boundaries and stuff like that. So it was kind of like some of it was gender, some of it was sexuality. And having gone to Catholic school most of my life, my mom would have been shocked to know what kinds of presentations and like programs I would Right. In. Oh, I mean, yeah. how
1: how courageous of you as an undergrad RA, you know, to to dive right in. I mean, I, I think it's incredible. What were you studying at the time?
2: Organizational communications. I was All right. gravitated towards any class where I can be talking. I love... <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Do we get to talk here? Do yeah, we get, yeah. what,
2: is it math or not? No, I, I actually, I actually love math, but that's how I started. So I was an RA, and then when I was about to finish school... I was talking to my hall director and I said, I'm not sure what I want to do next, but maybe I could do what you're doing. You seem to really enjoy working with students and kind of working through challenges and crises. I kind of like that. And she said, well, you have to get your master's. So I went all the way to Oshkosh, Wisconsin to find a job in New Jersey. So my real start was Seton Hall University. I love them. I got a grad assistantship before I even applied to a master's program. (laughs) So they were like, "Which program?" Wow! You probably don't even know That's some awesome. of these things. So I looked up there. No, it's amazing. The closest I'm learning. To it was the um, masters in educational administration and supervision, and they only had a PhD, not a master's. So I kind of cre- created my fir- the first higher ed masters there because I was piecing it together, and um, and oh, wow. I, they allowed me. And this is back to like the idea of diversity. There was a chair of the department who was just amazing, gave me so much grace, and said wait, but you got into the K-12 program. Why would you want to do higher ed? I said, well, I always wanted to do higher ed. And I saw the classes were there. So I figured we could work something out. That's where I channel my mom again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's,
0: nice. that's where I channel my oh. mother
2: again. And he was yeah. like, I can't think of why we can't do that. Let's figure it out. And we did. Oh. And I ended up staying there for my, for my PhD too. I finished it decades <laughs> later. But what resonates to me throughout my whole career is that I had people along the way who didn't see me as Latina, didn't see me as a Black woman, didn't see me as a woman, just saw me as a scholar, as a student, as a employee, as an administrator. So I would say that working in in higher ed and working in student affairs especially, seeing humanity in its rawest form was really where I've gotten a lot of my, um, I guess, open-mindedness and thoughts about how diversity can work if you really just shift your perspective and your own awareness.
0: So you have already said a couple of terms that I think we use them regularly throughout our lives, but um, not many of us have a chance to step back and examine these words. So I'm wondering if you can take us through a couple of definitions. So first of all, can you walk us through what the difference is between race and ethnicity?
2: Sure. I'll speak to it from my own perspective and my own identity, but race is a socially constructed concept. That people from different colors and what they appear can be labeled a certain way. So that's why you'll see on a on a U.S. census form, are you, well, I see the, are you Hispanic or not? <laughs> and then you pick there. And then from there, you pick race. And then there's Asian, Caucasian, white, there's black. And to be honest, back it, before I went to college, if you had asked me what my race was, I would have just said, oh, I'm Dominican or I'm Hispanic, because that was the language at the time. Now we say Latinx or Latino. So I didn't learn that I was Black as a race until I went to college. And other people told me, you know, you're Black, right? I'm like, what? My mom didn't tell me I was Black? What are you talking about? Meanwhile, my family and many of my grandparents, my parents were darker than me. So when I came back home and told my mom, oh, by the way, we're Black. You can't say negative things. And you know, like, in my family, sometimes there were some issues with like if you marry don't marry someone black because you you're gonna bring down the whole culture. There were like serious issues like that within the culture, which I hate to admit it, but that's what race is. that idea of what you look like and the identity with it. So now I proudly say I'm black. Like I said, if you had asked me at 14, what was my race? I wouldn't know how to answer that question. So it's also an evolving concept and self-identity thing. Ethnicity, I would define it as a community-oriented identification. So like if I, I say my race is Black, then I say my ethnicity is Latina or Latinx or Hispanic. Because that's a community of other people that have similar traits or similar commonalities with food, commonalities with language. I also speak Spanish. Then if you ask me what my nationality is, I was Dominican because I was born in Dominican Republic. But once I came to the United States and became a citizen, my nationality technically is American, or U- United States. Mm. So there's like layers of, of who you are and layers. Yeah. yeah. The, you
1: know, what I'd really like to, to put a pin in. And, and go back to in this as well. Cause that was a beautiful. I mean, I love the way that you share this through the personal lens. Like, for example, I had no idea that it sounds like, um, from the kind of like a Dominican heritage in your family, like you struggle with some racism, even going back into your own heritage. You know, I did, I did not know this as a part of your story. And you talk about race as a social construct. And I think that that is a really, really powerful point. That I I I don't know how many of us like like that's that's really something to dig into. So we're we're talking we're saying that that race isn't a a biological fact, right? I mean, I think when you look at the sort of like genetics involved, there's like a barely perceptible um, something that gives your skin a different color, and that's it. And what is constructed around all of that. Is the social construction part. And it reminds me of, you remember Professor Mich- Mitchell at ASU? Mm-hmm. So we were taking this this class.
0: Late 90s. Late
1: so. 90s. We go to our professor, one of our favorite classes ever, a Black faculty member. And we're like, oh my God, we're studying postmodernism, post And we have learned that race is a floating signifier. And our, our minds are blown and we're so excited by this. And he looked at us and he goes, doesn't matter much when I get punched in the face, right?
2: Exactly. That's that's the problem, right? What other people's perceptions are. It doesn't matter what you think you are, because at the end of the day, you still get judged by what you look like, and that's part of the issue with race. That you can say all you want, like, oh no, we I don't see color. I don't believe in categorizing people. And it's like, well, that's not even natural. That's not human. We as humans, we categorize people. <laughs> like that's what it is.
0: Nor is it a social reality that we live in. Like uh, th- uh, we live in a culture that is so just soaked in race consciousness for better or for worse.
2: Exactly. I have two books that I want to suggest if I can explain a couple. So one of the books that I read early on in my career that I felt was one of the clearest in terms of trying to explain all this stuff and why it's so important to talk about it was Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum? Mm-hmm. And she actually did a an update twenty years later, which was awesome because it was like you know language changes and evolves over time. Right. The other one about the social construction piece, I think that I re- I haven't read a book in a while that really made me think like this. Um, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson oh. that came out. Uh, oh, I haven't yes. read it, yeah, but it-
0: uh, I heard an interview with That's her. So yeah,
2: <laughs> it just puts it in perspective in a way that is almost. I wouldn't say shocking. I don't think I get shocked that much, but it was very like, wow, how do I not know this? I'm, I'm a diversity and inclusion practitioner, trainer. And yet there are things that I that made me think about things in a different way about just humanity, the reality of humanity.
1: Is there anything off the top of your head that occurred to you that in that
2: way that surprised you? Uh, yes, I think it, it made me think about like some unconscious ways that, for example, I went to Chile and I'm walking around the streets and I pretty much was ignored because a lot of people where I was navigating space were white. And even though they could be considered as you know part of the ethnicity of Hispanic or Latino, I felt invisible and I walked around and I kind of enjoyed it. But I thought, why am I feeling so invisible and people are not acknowledging me? And then I realized, well, I look darker than everybody else. And I think I even had braids at the time when I went. So that book made me think about like white women in past times who had maids, servants, and some of the women of color in their lives were people who were of service to them. So there was this whole section about that and how sometimes that's such a consciousness that you don't even realize it's there. And maybe, and I've had experiences and I've had some challenges of white women in my life who I felt like, we're not equals, are we? Like at the end of the day, I'm thinking we are, and then something happens in the interaction. If we're working together something that I'm like, you still think you're better than me or you have power over me or you're talking to me in a way that you think I'm less than. And I don't think you even, and, and the thing about my perspective is I don't think you realize you're doing it. So that no. oh, it doesn't even realize it. No, yeah, absolutely. Put it in perspective. It said, basically some, some people are raised with these people in their lives who are of service to them and they bring that into their lives later in the workplace. And I was like, oh, that explains so much about so many interactions I've had.
1: Such a powerful point. It reminds me too of, you remember Orla's uh, research on um, org wife syndrome. Yes. You know, we see that with, with, you know, men in the workplace being like, well, you're going to pick up the food, right? And yeah. you're going to do the agenda and you're going to do, you know, it's just an example of that, of that embedded sexism. And I feel like, I feel like that is a really, really powerful way to talk about white supremacy culture. And, and at least in my own work is to understand the deeply, the deep, embeddedness of this and it is a part of the work for me as a white woman is bringing it into my own consciousness you know that's my work you know what has been sort of laid in there like culturally and even socially historically you know along along the line but that's my work to do. And it's really powerful to hear you speak of your experiences with this.
2: You probably didn't get this education or awareness until you probably went to college. I'm guessing. Oh no. Yeah. If you had a great high school teacher who brought you through the Richard Wright and all the really cool literature there. Otherwise now there's this fight about let's not teach people this negativity of, you know, critical race. Theory. No
0: college was central for me for a white kid, from the suburbs who only hung out with other white kids and only knew other white kids college was essential in learning this i had no idea and so this idea of unconscious bias mm. is so crucial because i had no idea that i even had these biases until i went to college and learned about his, learned the history and then learned about this idea of unconscious bias and then it ties into something that's that's even broader than than this the idea in therapy and self work that most of our work is about bringing the unconscious into the conscious mm, yes you know and and so this is just one really important aspect of just a bigger you know life work that we all have to do absolutely Sophia, so there are so many words here that I just want to make sure parents listening to this get oriented. So we got race, we have ethnicity, we just mentioned unconscious bias. Are there any other key terms that as parents uh, start to think through this stuff and they think about how to talk to their kids about this, what other terms should, should parents know?
2: I would say if you wanted to go from the positive perspective, it's ally. What does it mean to be an ally and to look Mm -hmm. out for others? And even if you're not part of a culture or a way of being, that you can still advocate. So being an advocate for social justice in general. So I would say social justice is another term that I've always loved. So diversity is who's there, who's not. People, right? Numbers. Mm -hmm. Inclusion is who is able to contribute and be part of that number, so it's not enough to just bring a number of people that are different together. It's how are you all engaging and does everyone feel like they can equally contribute and are the possibility of outcomes equal for everybody. So diversity, inclusion, equity. And I put it in the, in that order because you hear diversity, equity, inclusion. And that's only because we don't want it to spell out die
0: Uh i didn't i never thought about that okay thank you
2: (laughs) i say equity after inclusion because equity really is the hard work of looking at what is wrong what is different what is not happening that's not like bringing that systemically yeah yeah because equality is everyone gets the same thing but equity is everyone gets what they need to be successful and thrive so Like I'm going to bring this to parenting for a second. I have two kids, two two young people that I am am responsible for. They are so different, different personalities, different needs. If I treated them equally, then I would be a terrible parent because I'm not being responsive to what each of them needs to be able to thrive. So I've had to really work hard to figure this out over time, right? And you never get it completely right, but I'm going to frame it in saying, Like it's just being responsible and paying attention. So when it comes to diversity, everybody's like, this is so hard. And they sit through maybe like a a long day of a workshop. And it's like, you know, what's hard living this every day and having to respond to other people because of the way you've been treated or looked at or the injustices that might happen to you personally because other people don't understand they're doing it. So diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, as in what are the actions you're taking to actually make change and create opportunity for other people. But that takes, let's bring in another term, anti-racism. I also like to say anti-bias because I think racism obviously is is a a major issue. And this this last year, especially a lot of parents were like, how do I talk to my kids about this? Right. And someone like me who's already a person of color it is like, how do I not? I have to. My kids are Mm. already navigating the world in a way that's unjust. So I'll give you an example. When my son was in pre-K, the teacher called us in because they do these testing things to see if, you know, can he touch his nose? Can he touch his knees? Can he put, like, can he follow direction? I guess is the whole premise there. So we go to meet with the teacher and she's like, oh, you know, I just want to talk to you about your son maybe has some issues, you know, and I said, oh, what's the problem? Well, maybe it's a, it's a language barrier issue. I said, that's interesting because my son doesn't speak Spanish and that's my bad, <laughs> I should have thought yeah. Spanish I said tell me more what am I I'm trying to understand what's happening she's like, well when I was giving him instruction he was looking at me strange I told him to touch his nose I told him to bend down and put his hand up and he just looked at me really strange the whole time so I was trying to figure out if he understood me and I said, oh let me figure out what's going on here So I go back to my son and I said what happened like the teacher said you were looking at her funny <laughs> he says, I was just trying to figure out why she's telling me to touch my nose in school. What's the point? (laughs) 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 He was was just confused. But basically, she chalked it up to one that he was Latino or Latinx Mm -hmm. and one that he was a a kid of color and that somehow there was a developmental delay with him because he was looking at her strange. As an Ota, and it was the
0: opposite, he's like, What are you doing? Why? Wh-? Yeah. <laughs> what
2: is this? Why are you telling me to touch my nose? Like, it's so, it's silly because I'm aren't I supposed to learn about letters and numbers? Like, what do you, doing?
1: Sophia? That sounds exhausting. I mean, you were pulled into a meeting, a working mom this is the last thing that you need is to be pulled into a meeting, and then to, you have to go and have this conversation and and to then you know, face this sort of like, I don't know, uh, d- did it feel almost like? It's biased. Does it feel like scrutiny to some degree? Judgment? I mean, it sounds exhausting.
2: All of it. And it's not the first instance. There's been others where I've had teachers just, I'm trying to figure out, is that teacher mistreating my, my child because of who they are? Or are they just mean? And not, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just trying to, and that's the exhausting piece, right? Like always trying to figure out, it could just be that she's just mean to him because she doesn't like his personality or her personality. But if you're trying to figure it out all the time, because I know that my experiences, I'm always trying to figure out: if, Did I not get that promotion because of who I am? Did I not? Yeah, get- yeah that's it- super
0: fascinating. I I've, I've never thought like if there's some instance where one of our kids is we 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 perceive it uh, them as being treated unfairly or unkind, like. I ne- like I just immediately chalk it up to that person's a jerk and that's just the, that's, that's who they are. And there's no, th- we uh, don't so go any I, yeah, yeah. And just, just yeah. the like psychological and emotional burden that, I don't have to carry. That and and so this is this That's is a super interesting, yeah, yeah, so I like mean, this is what what helped me start to understand white privilege and why it's so hard for most white people to understand white privilege is that it's what you don't have to deal with. <laughs> it's what you never it's the times you didn't get pulled over. You know, it's the time you didn't get followed in the it's like all the stuff that you never have seen in your life. And so, it's yeah, it's hard to see white privilege when you're white because it's all the stuff you didn't have to deal with.
2: Exactly. But as we learned this last year, when we talk about anti-racism, anti-bias, it's not what is happening and pointing out all the problems. It's what am I doing to make things better? Am I trying to notice those things? Am I going to look out for others who are already experiencing these? Like I was having a conversation with someone about anti-Semitism and the growing number of posts and epithets everywhere i mean it's just horrible and islamophobia and it think of every every Islam, every otherness like I, I think of what things i'm not and am i doing something am i so back to like why do i talk to my kids about this we're always having conversations about you know my poor kids they they have language probably that other kids may not have because i'm always- <laughs> 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 like, all right so, so they you know we're, we're always talking about like who are we missing? Who are we not looking out for? Who are we not standing up for when it comes to LGBTQ plus advocacy? They've always heard me say positive things about what we need to be doing more of. We go to the pride parade. As a, as a queer woman myself, Like I am constantly trying to figure out how do we use language that is not coded in negativity all the time? Because I think sometimes we say things that you don't know what your child identity is. You don't know that. And there are things that they might hear when they're five, six, seven, eight years old, where there's forming their opinions and thoughts, they might hear a parent say a negative thought about somebody because of their identity. And they might say, oh, now I can't be who I am. Now Mm -hmm. I can't tell mom who I am because I heard that negativity. Or if they say racist stuff about a culture and they like somebody from that culture, guess what? They're not gonna be able to talk to their parent about that because they're gonna say, oh, my parent is not gonna accept me now. It doesn't feel Mm. safe. It doesn't feel safe. So we're always trying to, I'm not saying I'm perfect. We're not. I'm sure I say things that they're like, why did she say that? Like one thing that happened is my, um, we were in the car. My daughter was little. (laughs) I try not to tell too many more recent stories because there's a lot. Um, But when she was (laughs) like five, I was handing her the phone and my, my husband's uncle was calling and he was speaking in Spanish and she took the phone and he was trying to say just happy birthday. So she hands us back the phone. And she goes, I don't understand what you're saying. And we're like, what? You know, I don't know, he's saying something in Spanish. I'm not from there. And I freaked hmm. out and I'm like, not from where? Like I was not even, I was not driving. Yeah. If I had been driving, I think I would have been like, <laughs> what <do you> mean? <laughs> how did I not instill pride for, you know, uh, for, oh. for culture? So then we had a whole conversation about like, oh, the, you don't have to know Spanish to be Hispanic or to be Latina. So it's, it was a very interesting moment where you think you're embedding or instilling certain values and pride, but you're not if you're not actively engaging it and talking about it.
0: Hey, if you like what we're doing here at the Family Thrive Podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player, share it with other parents in your life, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. The Family Thrive is a movement, not a moment. So let's spread the love.
1: It sounds like what I'm hearing is there's a wonderful opportunity to infuse joy and positivity when you're talking about our relationship with the world, with others, um, with how we're showing up for others, the things that we're noticing that there could be, it sounds like there's a really powerful effect in our own modeling, not only for ourselves probably, but also for our kids in being able to bring this positive and joyful language to the home. When speaking of of others and other cultures and our observances and things like that.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, my family is a big family. We have 15, I think, I hope I have the number right. Every time I turn around, the a new one. But <laughs> my siblings, we have 15 cousins that all hang out together. And if you saw the picture of them, they all look so different. They're all different shades. They all have different personalities. And it's so wonderful to have them all like together and playing together. Because I'm like, this is what I would love to see in the world. Oh, it was beautiful. That play together and don't have any concern or, you know, the their race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality is not an issue. It's like we're just having a good time and we're having fun.
0: We're humans it, having a good
1: time. Can I talk with you because I think I think one step in this direction of achieving this vision that you speak of, this beautiful vision. It's what I'd love to see in the world as well. And it's, it's a vision where we love our, our color and that inherent beauty and our differences and all of that. We're, we love that. It's not the color blind thing. It's like the, like the profound, the beauty of profound diversity and difference. And it seems like a step in that direction is this is this inner work, especially for white folks and white women like myself, is this inner work. But then on top of that, that inner work leads to the desire to show up. We want to show up more every day, get up off the couch of white privilege where things are comfortable and move into the space of doing outward work. And I think that's moving into the space of allyship. And it really want to model that for my kids. The other side to this is some of what I what I have have been seeing too is the significant emotional labor that we throw on people of color and as white women, white women on women of color, to bear witness to this allyship, to hear from us, to see us, to, you know, all of this. Like I want to do this work. I've been trying to do this work with my kids. Totally imperfectly as well. So I want to know from you, if you won't, if you don't mind talking about it, like, do you have this experience of that burden of white kind of like allyship moving forward as we're growing? Are we a burden? I guess, essentially, are we a burden on people of color as we're growing? (laughs)
2: I'm gonna answer like I said, clear as kind. Yes. <laughs> and yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> clear as kind.
2: It depends on on context, right? Like um, yeah. I have chosen a career of being in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which means that it's my job to point out injustices or see where there might be some issues, but it's also an exhausting job because sometimes some of the people that are the, the more vocal about their allyship are the ones that are sometimes the worst (laughs) when their Mm. actions are not aligning. So my thought on allyship is don't wait for the recognition. I think some people really would love to, and that's a conditioning thing too, right? Look, look what I did. I read this book. I'm doing this amazing thing. And I know people who will constantly tell me the work they're doing behind the scenes, but will actually sit in a meeting with me and not call out an injustice in the moment. And I'm like, Mm. that's great that you're reading all these great books, that you went to that book club that you put that blog together. But if you're not showing up for me as a colleague, as a friend, I'm not sure if it's worth your time to continue to read those things. So Mm -hmm. I would say like, what what on an ongoing basis do you do? What decisions do you make? Do you surround yourself with people of color and not in tokenized ways, but in, no, we're partners together. I'm going to share my resources, my power, and my influence with this person. So that you are taking the actions that are behind this, you know, beyond just the learning. So I I wouldn't say it's a burden. It's more like an awareness that needs to happen around really showing up.
1: Yeah. What it means to get into the get into the work. You know, that's something that really struck me in the past year, especially after the murder of George Floyd was coming to understand. Like, I, I remember thinking, I don't have like anything to give. What do I have to offer? Like, what, what, what do I have? Like in terms of, and, and it was just like an overnight switch of like, wait a minute. You know, there are so many different things I can do in our daily lives and through our businesses, through our nonprofit to support people of color, especially for me to support women of color and to be able to show up in a way that I didn't think I had resources. I do have resources. And it was coming to understand that I do have. You know, there's opportunities if I just kind of flip the switch and start thinking about how I can start to show up. To me, it was just a huge difference. I was stuck in this space before of like, I don't really know what to do to show up. That's my work. And I do think everybody has that opportunity inside themselves in their own lives. It's their own work to do, but we all have spaces where we can show up. I have an example of. Um, a woman I've worked with who I, you know, I remember she, she came to me in the nonprofit world and said, Hey, could I talk with you about the nonprofit? And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm pushing water up a a mountain. I have nothing to give. I have nothing to offer, you know, with that. And I started to dig in and, and realize, especially in this past year, but no, I do. I have connections that I have because of my privilege. And these are connections to be shared, to to be shared with you. You know, it's just like small, small things like that, that I think, especially for white women, there is a lot of, oh my God, there's so much of it to do. So it resonates with me, not trying to perform this, but just doing, doing the work. The other side of it, most of the people I know in my network are, are, are white women. So I do feel like there is a role for sort of like sharing the work. But it's a fine line, I feel like, between, because it is about you doing the work and and knowing that yourself and growing yourself. But then you also want to encourage the other white people in your life.
2: Exactly. And I love the idea of that action could look like what you were saying, being a good mentor to people. But beyond mentorship and giving your information and being able to help someone out is also sponsorship. What doors are you? Yes. Who are you introducing people to and living in a world of abundance and not of scarcity. Like, Oh, if I open that door, somehow that's going to be a problem for me. It's like, no, no, no. We're, we all have different missions, different things that we could be doing. And then we can partner on some, some things and Mm -hmm. strengthen something that we're working on.
0: So Sophia, I would be remiss if I don't just ask this, this really specific question, because I want parents listening to the podcast. To just get this little little piece from from you, do you have any advice for white parents like us to talk to our kids about race, ethnicity, social justice, diversity, inclusion, equity?
2: Yes, I would say don't wait. It's not a special conversation that let me wait till they turn thirteen and now I'm going to have a conversation.
0: It's like the talk. Yes, right? yeah. <laughs>
2: like think about the talk that black parents have to have with their their young men of color or or even Hispanic parents, Latino parents that conversation of you show up differently in the world you're gonna you're going to be mistreated and yeah that's a conversation later you're not going to scare a 5 year old and say okay the world is horrible to you because of what you look like but i would say like don't shush when conversations are happening around there. I think a lot of folks will not say the word black even because they're like, oh, no, no, it was sh- somebody shushed me because I, I pointed out somebody was black or I was watching TV and something came up. You have to have those conversations early, really early. And it doesn't have to be a whole sit down explanation. It could be as practical as making sure that your children's books are diverse that there are different representations in your household around different cultures that when you're watching movies, you're not only focusing on movies or try to seek out movies that have a more broader representation. Unfortunately, that's harder to, to find. And it's funny because I was just watching Netflix and I go to Amazon prime. I go to all these things and they're like the black experience and, or mm-hmm. during Asian American and Pacific Islanders, the Asian experience, which is great group them for me. And that's awesome. But They should just be family stories. They should just be like comedy and they're all there. But I think doing that as a parent goes a long way to really showing young people the different ways that people live.
0: So what I'm hearing is a more subtle, like it's not sitting down and, you know, son, let's talk about race and ethnicity, Uh, but that it is this ongoing subtle way of, of, Bringing diversity in, into yeah, into the home through through books, through movies, through TV shows.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, our role modeling. You know, it seems like as uh, we're like getting learning, unlearning, doing our work. You know, and being vocal about that. You know what I mean? Sharing, sharing at the table about what we're learning. Um, I know, having slightly older kids now, one of the cool things has been. Like there's a lot of movies we can watch together, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of opportunities there that have been really, really awesome for us too. A part of the part of our journey has been, and we've had significant um, privilege to be able to do this, but we chose to live in a more diverse place than where we were living before. And a big part of that was a consciousness around like how our kids were growing up. And um, we, we didn't want to kind of perpetuate, you know, the way that we grew up. Right. And it, it was, we had the really great opportunity to move move into a place that is significantly more diverse and has, has automatically just brought up more opportunities for conversation, just sort of embedded in, in the home. But it sounds like too, with little kids, like, like what you were talking about, like, I totally we're of the generation growing up when a little kid would be like, look, mommy, that person has brown skin. Look, mommy, that person, you know, like the kids are observers, right? right. Like you said, yes. we're built to see difference. And we grew up in the generation of the parents being like, shh, 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 shh. that is not nice. Let's not talk
2: about it. Yeah. And it's like, why but, is that not nice? Not nice. It's beautiful. Like,
1: it. <laughs> Right. Isn't it beautiful that we all have like profoundly different
2: skin colors? Do you want to talk more about that? Exactly. And you know, like I remember when my son saw two men holding hands, look, they're holding hands. I'm like, yeah, there are a couple with me and your puppy, like just so that it's normalized. And I remember when he was taking a Taekwondo class uh, and I was in that class too, um, in a different class, not the kid one. The adult one. But, <laughs> yeah, don't so I, I,
0: I met. You are, you are crushing, crushing it in that in kid's it. class I though.
2: <laughs> I did beat up a teenage girl. No, let me, <laughs> let me stop. So how this shows up later, you know, it's normalized, right? This is what pe- couples look like and there are different representations of that. Um, during a class, he had uh, Master Lee, had all the kids lined up. And he's like, you need to have hair neat, uniform clean. It was like one of the tenets of the thing. Like you had to come in looking neat. You couldn't look a mess. And he would say, don't you want to look? He's rubbing the head of a girl and says, don't you want to look good for your boyfriend? Like he's genderizing it. And it actually was my daughter who goes, Mommy. Doesn't Master Lee know that boys can be with boys and girls can be with girls? Mm. How does he, right. how does
0: he, <laughs> yep. how does he know Come that, on, Master Lee? Come on, he says, how he not
2: know that? I'm like, I know, right?
0: <laughs> you might be good at, at you know martial arts, but you need some social stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah.
2: Exactly. So, but that you know, there's so many settings that yes. stuff like that gets normalized. So, that, because I was having uh, a you know, conversations with my child early on at five years old, she recognizes like something's not right. So you don't have to, mm-hmm. that's that critical thinking skill. There are people around us that have different ways of thinking, different ways of navigating the world, and they don't have to be the same as you. So you just need to know for yourself what is right and what is wrong and then compare and say, Oh, look, he masterly doesn't know this. And it's like, he doesn't. So that's okay. Or he mm-hmm. doesn't want, or maybe in that moment, he just didn't give the example. So I don't know what lives in his heart. Let's not make assumptions. Let's assume the best.
1: Yeah. And, and as a parent, we can, because we're all, I mean, from from our generation anyway, and like well, the way many of us were raised, we're going to struggle with like kind of like a binary kind of a view, for example. And, uh, you know, you can, you can change along the way. You know, like I remember having this awareness when we're talking about, well, like someday you might have a girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, sort of situation to the kids and be like, and all of the diversity in that. So we were like, it could be boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, whatever. And I had a proud moment recently where Maisie helped Max do that Grand Theft Auto presentation. And uh, she, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he hired her to, to help with the presentation. And she was like, mommy, he didn't have, he didn't have the all the pronouns. Like we needed to have more diversity in the pronouns. So I, I definitely added that for him and, and talked to him about that. Oh, that's and I, I think you're right. It is like just these efforts to to normalize and and I think many of us do have to raise our own awareness in order to to insert that into these conversations. But it is a really really powerful way to start bringing diversity and really belonging like into the home. Yes,
2: it starts at home.
0: So Sophia, uh, you have worked for the Jed Foundation, uh, which does amazing work around uh, teen and young adult mental health and suicide prevention. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned there, what you learned as a parent, just a little bit about your work there and I know that you're transitioning so Oh
1: and maybe even even the transition to the Jed Foundation and then and then because that is really interesting too coming out of higher education.
2: Okay, well, I was in higher ed for 24 and a half years when I got recruited for a role at the JET Foundation. You already mentioned the mission, which was amazing to me because after being in higher ed and observing young people just struggling, and I always loved working in colleges because it was the transition time that you realize, like, wow, some people have eye-opening experiences for the first time in college that, you know, I've never experienced this, or first time away from home. First time on my own, first time meeting people different than me. And that comes with a lot of mental health weight from I thought I knew everything and now I'm shocked or my eyes are open. And sometimes that's really positive and cool. For some, it's negative and really feels like, what did I what did I miss? Right. Mm -hmm. And that comes with a lot of um, struggles mentally. And and it's also an age where some people are realizing for the first time that they have a mental disorder or an illness that's something that was not diagnosed previously. So there's a lot of resource sharing and connecting to practitioners and mental health providers in a way that I feel like, okay, this is your moment. Let's figure this out so that you can set yourself up for success from now on. So to me, the transition to Jed, I was at first like, oh, I'm not sure I've been in higher ed so long. My next role, I was the associate vice president and dean of students. And in my mind, in the trajectory of my career, I'm going to be a vice president of student affairs. And then when the role came up and I was recruited, the idea of putting together the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and thinking about disparities and who's not getting what they need in terms of health, mental health, help and, and resources, and putting that together with mental health, DEI and mental health together was to me like, wow, it was the equity and mental framework that was put together between the Jed Foundation and the Steve Fund that really, when I read the 10 recommendations, there's a lot of others in there, but Basically, like making mental health a priority, listening to your students to get their feedback about what they need, diversifying and training and making sure that your staff is culturally responsive. You know, you can go on and on. But Mm -hmm. to me, they were like, okay, I can really, I can see myself really helping to move this along and helping the organization think about it from a more connected perspective. So that was my transition to Jed. And I've been there two and a half years. And one thing that I, I've learned is I'm, I'm a higher ed professional. I'm also a DEI practitioner. So the mental health piece was not one that I knew it more from a first responder um, situation, handling crises and working through situations on, on different campuses. But I felt like at this time, they need the clinical perspective now. And there are many really amazing researchers, psychologists who this is their world and trying to do. The practical research around this. So I kind of feel like my role at JED, I was there two and a half years, and I'm still staying on to help with a couple of projects that I'm really excited about. One of them is called Proud and Thriving, um, supporting the mental health of LGBTQ plus young people, youth in, in higher ed, in high school, and in um, colleges. So I'm taking on a new role, it's focusing back on primarily diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'm going to be the managing director for diversity, equity, and inclusion for Billie Jean King Enterprises. And all right. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. like, oh my God. It's, it's it's a hard transition because I'm like, you know, you oh, always, wow. when, once, you, once you're you at a place that you really feel like you're making a difference, and, and the Jet Foundation is doing some amazing things. And I'd love to talk about some things I learned there, even for my own family. But when I was recruited to do this position at for Billie Jean King, she is a an icon, a, He's an icon. A, Absolutely. An, yeah. a champion for equality, for gender equity, for equity, for women in general, equality for sports and even beyond sports, just making sure that everyone is is respected and is given their fair chance, their fair opportunities, and their due in terms of finances, all of it. Because I think that helps to even the, the playing field, literally, for future generations. So making sure that young women get connected and get what they need to, to move forward and thrive. So I'm excited. I start, you know, in the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, um,
0: yes, that's, I that's start incredible. very soon.
2: And uh, I'm excited because we'll be able to work with different organizations to help them strategize and think about what could they be doing differently or what could they continue to be doing that's helping their their employees and their, their communities thrive and, and really respect differences? And not just that, but figure out how those differences can actually help everyone be better people to put out better products, put out better services. So that's what I'm going to be doing. And I'm excited.
1: Oh, it's beautiful. What an incredible mission, too. And the fact that, I mean, you're so entrepreneurial. That's one thing that I really, really love about you. Um, you and so you're in another founding role. I mean, I think one thing that we didn't talk about is that you found you founded an organization too. You have a group of eight thousand women on Facebook who are completing their uh, um, their their Latinas completing After doctoral the- degrees. Yes, this is in addition to everything else yes. that you're doing. You know, I mean, talk talk about moving. You know, pushing the needle. You know, and bringing—I think—bringing think, bringing women into the spaces where we need them most, especially bringing Latinas into the spaces where we need them most, um, is incredible. So this seems like totally just makes sense for me, for you, because you're 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 a founder, you're an entrepreneur. I think you see need and you you move into addressing it. Super exciting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you'll be starting in the next couple of weeks, and so we are excited to have you back on pretty soon, so you can tell us about all the work that you're into there. This is such an exciting position, and we're so we're just so thrilled for you.
1: I'm thrilled. Uh, yeah, I'm really really interested to know more too. As this starts to come up, and we talk next time about how we can move forward into a space of not only celebrating uh, our differences, but like treasuring and protecting it to me it's a whole nother level between like acknowledging and then kind of like really celebration to it to then moving into the space of protection and this is our future the growth of our country our economy our um i think moving into the space of, of creating a safer world yes we need to move into that space of protection and treasuring almost
2: love the idea of the idea of safety psychological safety safety in general so that everyone can just be themselves and not be afraid of speaking their own truth and just being who they are and not being afraid of navigating space and wondering, is someone going to be treating me differently, mistreating me? I would love to see that. That's my goal. To, in every space, everyone can navigate it fully as themselves.
1: How does this this movement towards safety relate to, um, from your perspective, some of the unique mental health challenges faced by BIPOC folks in this country, and also probably more more generally what you can extrapolate from that and how that relates to, to safety and what we can do.
2: Well, I'll speak to BIPOC Mental Health Month. It used to be, I think it was 2008. I could be wrong, but B.B. Campbell-Moore, had, her name was attached to National Minority Mental Health Month, okay. Awareness Month. And a few organizations last year with the movement of really pointing out that there are some people in, in minority communities or minority numerically. I know that's not a term that is embraced anymore because it, it really has been used in negative ways as opposed to the numerical sense minority as in less than. So I personally don't use minority mental health for that reason, but I also um, recognize that not everybody understands what BIPOC is. So black indigenous and people of color, which is a term that we heard more. It, it's not a new term, but we heard more in the last year because it pointed out the sp- Unique, I would say, challenges for for Black, Indigenous, and people who visually look in ways that, if you think about white supremacy and white, and, and I don't use that term lightly. I, I I'm very careful when I say the idea of whiteness as the um the norm, and that's the way I define it. Like who is other than what is the, seen as the norm. And there was a congressional task force that got formed to talk about. Black youth mental health and specifically black youth suicide. That while the numbers of suicides overall in the last year, which is excellent news, has gone down, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the numbers for young Black youth, Latin Latinx youth, and Indigenous youth has not gone down. It's actually going up. Because I think when you're watching violence and injustices and see, like, is there hope for me in this future? And I actually, when I see the numbers of who is getting advanced what the C-suites are looking like, what boards are looking like. And you're still not there after all this time. And you know, forget about people of color, even women (laughs) are not there. So then what kind of hope do you feel like you have in your future when you feel like so many doors are not opening up for you? So I would say that when it comes to mental health, that's that's part of that stress. So there's a lot of resilience, which I think is awesome. We use that Mm. term a lot, like, oh, you're so resilient. But when you're constantly feeling like messaging around your identity is negative of course you build resilience because you're like I have to get through this and you have people around you families back to the when do you talk to your kids about this I think families of color have always had to combat against what the world is saying what the what the media is saying about people of color so they do help their children build that resilience but when it lives in reality as you grow up and you start seeking out those opportunities beyond your family safety network, I think that's when it really hits hard and hits home. So that's what I think causes a lot of a lot more mental health concerns. And there's disparities in terms of psychologists and mental health providers. If you look at psychologists, uh, last I looked, I think was from 2018. If you look at, it was like 86% of, of psychologists that were tracked it by APA, the American Psychological Association, were white. Then after that, I I forgot the numbers exactly, but consider that only 14% of everyone else. So when you don't see yourself in the profession, you don't see it normalized in your family because of cultural issues or religious issues, where some families might say, don't talk out of turn, you know, and in some families, therapy is normalized. There I know people who grew up, and were in therapy since they were little because their families said, this is part of life. You need someone else outside of your family and who is professional to talk about your challenges. That is not the case for every family. And it's actually not accessible if you are you don't have the finances or you don't have right. the healthcare coverage to be able to see a mental. I mean, I was trying to make an appointment with a therapist through my own and I have health insurance and it was a challenge. It took weeks because just trying to connect who takes my insurance, how much is the copay? How much is it to see? So, I cannot even imagine for families just don't have that kind of coverage or whose families are working part time, who don't have mental health or even just health, general health coverage. So, I think there's a lot to be done, and there's work in recruiting new psychologists of color, but also in making sure that there's access to care.
0: We have you just for a couple more minutes. I want to see if I can just get in these these final three questions that we asked to guests. So the first one is if you could put a big post-it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, what would it say?
2: I would say, give yourself much grace as you would to others.
0: Mm, Give yourself grace. And then... beautiful and then what is the last quote that changed the way you think or feel
2: um i would say one by maya angelou where it's once you know better do better like we can mm. we can sit in our lack of awareness or i didn't know and it's like well now you know and that's yeah. anything. And even in a relationship trust me i'm about to be married the <laughs> no, only thing i want to say is i'm going to be next week is my 20 year wedding anniversary and if i learned anything it's once you know what your partner needs, wants, like you, you should act on that and, and make sure that you're doing that. I haven't been perfect, but I would say like that's where how we got to 20 years. Just trying to understand like what do you need to be a, a your own successful, thriving person, and what do I need, and paying attention to that.
0: Oh, what it. a beautiful know gift know to better, share. Do better, yeah, yeah. And then finally, what is your favorite thing about kids? <laughs>
2: My favorite thing is you never know what they're going to do and say. That's always a <laughs> it's
0: always an adventure. I was scared to have kids.
2: I didn't even know I would because I never considered myself a, a good parent. Like I was always like, can I be a good parent? Like, what do you say to young people? I babysat when I was little, but when it came to my own, I actually had to ask somebody like, well, how do you respond to kids? Like, what do you do? How do you play with them? I'm not a play- <laughs> my mom was not the playful person. What am I going to do? And somebody, I remember the best advice I got was you wait for them to tell you what they want. I was like, no. I can do that. <laughs> that's easy. I can respond. So I feel like that helped me calm down about whether or not I was going to be a proactive, good parent. It was like, just Another- respond nicely and you'll be great. great point. <laughs> no, <laughs> They'll
0: tell beautiful. you what they need. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh, Sophia.
1: Sophia thank you, thank you, so, you much. so much for taking the time to to talk with us and and we'd really like for this to be a recurring series. We have so much oh, to talk yeah. about. As you can tell like we only like I feel like <laughs> got into a little bit of the surface, you know? Like I really feel like this is such such an incredible always incredible conversation with you, but this is this is really really powerful work uh for families. And thank you for everything that you do for the world. The world is so much better off with you in it. Oh, thank you. You're really mm, absolutely.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank it's you to so you too for everything that you're doing and the amazing things you're putting together for families because I think there's such a void. We we want to know what to do and it's so helpful to put it in one place that we can really tap into. So thank you for that. Oh,
0: thank well, you thank so you for thank being you. a part of this team. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. being
2: on our
1: board. Yeah, that's right. You nice. know, I'm excited. speaking of board positions, you know, like thank you. And thank you for all of the work that you're going to do to really elevate the resources that we're providing through the Family Thrive. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. All right, my friend. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Family Thrive Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, tell it to your friends, and head on over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this Family Thrive journey.